In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The rematch is on. Welcome to episode 190 of the Politically Georgia podcast from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and I'm joined by Patricia Murphy, the AJC's political insider columnist. And we're actually two of the political insiders here at the AJC, and a big announcement we've been expecting for really three years has now arrived. Opportunity and success in Georgia shouldn't be determined by your zip code, background, or access to power. But if our Georgia is going to move to its next and greatest chapter, we're going to need leadership. That's the message from Stacey Abrams' announcement video on Wednesday that she will indeed challenge Brian Kemp for governor in 2022. Leadership that knows how to do the job. Leadership that doesn't take credit without also taking responsibility. Leadership that understands the true pain folks are feeling and has real plans. That's the job of governor to fight for one Georgia, our Georgia. And now it's time to get the job done. Patricia, we have been expecting this news really since she ended her campaign for governor in 2018 after about 10 days of of purgatory. Um, So this is not a surprise. We've been using the term expected to run for governor, the phrase over and over again in just about every story we've written about the governor's race for next year. And yet still, it helps crystallize the moment and really the the dynamic going into 2022 here in Georgia. Oh, yes. Greg, let the games begin. I am so excited for this race. And congrats to you for breaking the news. I think on Twitter, you got like 62 million likes for this particular story. (laughs) Um, But yeah, this just sets up um, just an epic rematch between, we think, um, Stacey Abrams and Governor Brian Kemp, you know, but it won't be a replay. This state has really changed in the last three years since the last time these two went up against each other. And then, of course, we have the extra added dynamic uh, that Governor Kemp may have a real primary on his hands. We don't know that yet, but um, it, it it's the same two candidates, but it is not the same situation. You're exactly right. I mean, Georgia's electorate has changed. Hundreds of thousands of of new voters have been added to the rolls. Many of them are minority and younger. Um, And of course, for the first time now, Democrats can actually say for the first time in about 20 years, Democrats can say, hey, we've won a statewide race. We've won uh, the presidential contest. Um, you know, the, the last time a Democrat held the, the governor's office was in 2002 when, when Roy Barnes was upset by, by Sonny Perdue. But now Democrats have, uh, have, have reversed those, that string of defeats. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think um, there's no way to really overstate what a difference it makes in voters' psyche to believe that your vote could actually make a difference and the party that you support could really win. And so I think for Democrats, the fact that they were able to flip those two U.S. Senate seats and win the White House, um, that has really just changed. You can just feel it in the conversations we have with Democratic strategists um, in the conversations with Democratic voters. They are so much more activated, energized, and they really believe that a, there, it, there could be a Governor Stacey Abrams. I think it used to be um, an aspiration for those activists, and now it's a plan. And so this really sets up um, quite a dynamic for the next year. And as important as it is to voters, it's also important to donors and activists, the people who give the money to fuel these campaigns and who knock on the doors and make the phone calls and t send the text messages. Because I talked to so many um, Democratic top level strategists who said, hey, they got tired in 2018, 2016, 2014 of saying this, this state's on the verge of flipping the state's on the verge when it really wasn't. And then you have the actual flip in 2020. So now they can actually go to those donors and they already are. I mean, Stacey Abrams, one of the reasons she could afford to wait this long is because she has become such a fundraising powerhouse, really a, a democratic icon, someone who, um, who's raised her profile in defeat more than maybe she would have raised it had she won in 2018. Yeah, that's such a great point. Um, her Fair Fight Action Group has raised $100 million since she lost her campaign. I mean, that is just so unheard of. Um, so, uh, and those donors now, Georgia didn't just flip. It didn't just happen to turn blue. Um, it's Stacey Abrams who has given a lot of the credit for, for the organization, for the entire approach to Democrats running races in the state. It For so long, it had been sort of a soft-pedaled message of, oh, we're Democrats, but we're not liberals. Don't worry. We're not scary. Um, but vote for us anyway. It just wasn't a real galvanizing message. Stacey Abrams has always taken the approach to have a crystal clear message, very progressive, but to really register and turn out the voters who agree with you, not to try and win over people who only half agree with you. And so that worked in 2020. Um, there, there are decades, of course, of activists and um, the history in the state of particularly the Black, um, the black electorate uh, registering, turning each other out. Um, but she really managed to, to really uh, solve that puzzle in 2020. Uh, she's given a lot of credit for that. So the fact that it's her at the top of the ticket and not a more generic Democrat running for running for them is really going to bring donors in, I think, uh, lots of national attention. Um, it's just going to be a big race. Yeah, we use the phrase unconventional approach a lot in 2018 because it was back then. I mean, she ran as an unapologetic progressive. That was a phrase that she liked to use. Um, and yet she also appealed to the to the the mainstream, sort of the middle of the road voters, because what she usually talked about on the campaign trail was expanding Medicaid, boosting educating, education funding, fighting income inequality, you know, helping, helping struggling Georgians with tax breaks, things like that, that, you know, that if you polled them, like you, like we often poll at Medicaid expansion, show an overwhelming support. And yet she also, you know, when at, especially when asked, right, sometimes she wouldn't bring it up on the forefront. But if you, she was asked about, do you support, let's say, um, gun control? Do you support, um, 
You know, at one point in the campaign, um, she said she expressed support for reparations. You know, national issues that that uh, that the, a governor has very little say over. Um, but she, yeah, you know, do you support removing the the faces of uh, uh, re- reimagining Stone Mountain? Right, um, that got her in some hot water from Republicans. And but she's always said, "Nay, uh, this is not what my campaign will be about." But yeah, I I I don't believe in the Confederate legacy of of Stone Mountain. Um, so those are issues that will help drive this race. But really, I expect her to take on the same issues that she did in 2018. You know, putting expanding Medicaid first and foremost, um, even as Congress works on a, a sort of a, a workaround to force Georgia to expand Medicaid, whether or not the, the incumbent governor wants to or yeah, and um, those issues are just broadly popular, like you said, and I think that's because more and more Georgians find themselves as we um, kind of continue to see uh, disparity between the highest and lowest incomes in the state and disparity between uh, the prosperity in Atlanta and the real lack of prosperity in the rural parts of the state, more and more people find themselves sort of slipping between those cracks and uh, having those surprise medical bills. That's a big issue even for Republicans. Um, so these are people's real lives, and I think she has done a lot of work um, to get out and meet with people, meet with voters. I think the last campaign really informed her as well um, what people really care about in their daily lives. Um, But then, you know, at the same time, um, uh, I was so struck. I went back and watched some old uh, debate footage where Greg Bluestein was a a frequent panelist in a lot of those debates. Um, The conversation has changed so much since 2020, and I think particularly on social justice issues. Mm. Um, She is in a space where I think more Georgians are going to be with her this time around. Um, There was one debate question where she was asked about the time that she had burned a Georgia state flag. And she said, well, there was a Confederate flag on it. So yes, this was a peaceful protest and there was a Confederate flag on it. But the nature of the question was like, shouldn't you maybe have not burned that Confederate flag? It was just a totally different tone than I think we're going to see this time around. Um, And I think she is going to be... um, uh, she'll be a different kind of candidate in that way because more and more Georgians have had that own conversation with themselves and their families than even they did in 2020. Yeah. I mean, one of the unique aspects of that 2018 race, and we remember writing about it as a sort of preview for what could, we could see in 2020, but both, both candidates did not aggressively try to reach that middle. They might've, they might've welcomed the middle, but they did play to their bases in a way that basically they both said, Hey, the middle will come either way, right? But we're not going to go spend our time trying to uh, appeal to white suburban voters who used to be Republican, uh, if, if you're Stacey Abrams, or for, for Governor Kemp. He ba- basically bypassed Atlanta. He spent a lot of money on ads here in the, in the metro area. But, but in the closing weeks of the race, he was anywhere but Atlanta, really appealing to, to the Republican core. And I wouldn't be shocked to see um, a, a repeat of that strategy from both these candidates. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams is going to have uh, a little bit of an easier time holding off on that decision because she is not going to have a primary. And if Brian Kemp does have a primary and he does get a strong challenge from David Perdue, um, that is going to be all about the 2020 election. It's going to be all about Donald Trump. Um, it's just going to put Kemp in a really weird space that he's going to have to defend if he gets through a primary um, when he has to come back around and discuss that with general election voters. Yeah, let's get into that um, right now, actually, because Governor Kemp, he, he says basically, bring it on. Oh, I love it. I mean, it's not shocking. 
That's why we've been working so hard. I think it's a rallying point for Republicans because we know that this is just not the Georgia radicals that we're going to be facing. It's going to be the Hollywood crowd and everybody else that's going to flood money in here. All these different third-party groups are going to be out there advocating. I mean, we we got to fight like we've never fought before. But I will tell you the reaction that I got <clears throat> yesterday is people are ready to get in that fight. The governor is stuck in the middle of a major political squeeze, and former President Donald Trump is vocally leading the opposition in his own party. Look, I can't, I can't control what other people are saying. You know, I can control what I'm saying and what I'm reminding Georgians out there of I ran on issues that I wanted to do as governor, and I have done those. And I'm going to remind people about that. You know, these other people that are talking about certain things, they're free to do that. Uh, but we're going to talk about what I think Georgians care about. You know, Georgians care about having a governor that will do something to keep their families safe when you have people literally being shot and law enforcement officers killed in our capital city and in the metro area, it seems like almost weekly. You know, I'm the one that's been in the fight on those issues. That's what I'm going to be talking about. If other people are making noise, they can certainly do that. I know they're worried about television ratings and other things, but I'm worried about one rating. And that's going to be on election day, November of 2022. And it was Sean Hannity who said on Fox News after Abrams' announcement that Kemp should stand aside. Kemp has been very ineffective as a governor. And frankly, for the sake of the state of Georgia, I think he should probably bow out of the race. I think the candidate to watch, and I hope he gets in, would be former Senator David Perdue. He would be a much better candidate versus Stacey Abrams. If Kemp does stay in, well, that would also hurt. Uh, Herschel Walker in his Senate race against Raphael Warnock. Patricia, there's a lot of pressure on the governor from both sides. My God, what a nightmare. Like, literally, I'm sure Brian Kim is like, when am I going to wake up from this nightmare? It is a catastrophe. Sean Hannity. Oh, my God. <laughs> I almost can't wrap my head around it. Um, but let's OK, let's get back to Brian Kemp. Um, he's right. There is nothing he can do to control what people say. And the people is Donald Trump. And he has a gigantic problem on his hands, Brian Kemp does, um, because Donald Trump has just made it his business to destroy Brian Kemp. Um, I agree with Brian Kemp that most Georgians um, want to know what a governor is going to do for them. Most Georgians are going to are going to want to know, is the economy continue to stay strong? Um, am I going to have access to health care? Are my kids going to grow up in a safe community? I, most Georgians do want that. Um, but he has to worry about those Georgians on the margin, that, that MAGA crowd uh, that may or may not turn out for him um, and may or may not give him the rating he wants on election day. Um, it's a, it's a just, a, I just can't imagine being Brian Kemp every day right now. <laughs> I was texting one of his aides um, after re-listening to the audio of his press conference on Thursday. I said, you know, he, he's taking a very Zen-like approach to this. I can only control what I can control, which is, as, as you mentioned, is probably the best thing because he's not going to ever win back over Donald Trump uh, unless, uh, I don't know, unless the rapture comes or something dramatic. <laughs> it's just, it does not seem like that is ever going to happen. Um, hey, let's take a quick, quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about David Perdue. 
Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. Welcome back. I'm Greg Bluestein, your host of the Politically Georgia podcast, and I'm here with Patricia Murphy. Don't forget, both of us, along with our Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, team up every day and every night to produce what we think is the best tip sheet on Metro Atlanta in Georgia politics. We call it the jolt. It's in your inbox early, so it's ready when you are every morning. One of the very many benefits you can only get if you subscribe to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. So we've mentioned Donald, uh, Donald Trump's enduring uh, uh, rage towards Brian Kemp and the squeeze that the governor is in right now, but we haven't really talked yet about that potential primary challenger, former Senator David Perdue, who has now been open for a while. It was kind of under wraps, but now he's been openly um, talking about how he's conflicted about running. Uh, he's considering running against um, Governor Kemp. And he said that uh, essentially told our our friend Martha Zoller over at WDUN that um, he feels like our leaders have caved to pressure uh, rather than fight for Donald Trump. So if he would run, that's a preview of his message. It would be based on his loyalty to the former president. And of course, the former president um, has egged him on, encouraged him to run and would basically has assured him his endorsement. Yeah, well, you know, that's a message that I think is is uh, not going to be a November 2022 message. Um, but if you look into the polling, um, a large majority of Georgians in Georgia do not think that the last election was fair and square. Uh, there's a lot of suspicion among Republicans in Georgia, driven by Donald Trump, um, that there was election fraud, which uh, we all know after every court challenge, etc. Um, there's just been no evidence that anything uh, fraudulent happened in the election that would have changed those results. Um, but that's a message that does resonate among that Republican base. And so Brian Kemp um, is going to talk about the election integrity bill, um, uh, as they call it, that the Georgia legislature passed. He'll um, use that as a proof point. Um, but there's just no getting around the fact that he did not flip the election in Donald Trump's favor. And that's why Donald Trump is mad at him. It's really just that simple. And that's the opening that uh, David Perdue has. It may give him an opening in a primary um, enough to really cause some problems. Um, I don't know if that would win a primary in Georgia. Um, it definitely wouldn't win a general election in Georgia, because that's really what the last general election in Georgia was about. Um, Donald Trump on the front page of the AJC the Sunday before election day, saying, look, fellas, give me 11,000 votes. You know, I'm convinced that was a huge part of Joe Biden's victory here was because people were trying to um, just vote against Donald Trump and in the election in 2021. Um, so to relitigate that again um, will not be a winning message for a general electorate, but it is, I think, 
obviously more than enough um, to uh, to kick up some real dust in the GOP primary. And, and that's the challenge for for Governor Kemp, right? With with Donald Trump's approval ratings, at least in the last poll we've done a few months ago, still high among Republicans. Um, and this is not the only race that he's also obviously playing in in Georgia. Um, and that's why this th- Georgia could be re- the real test in the midterms uh, around the nation of Donald Trump's grip on the on the Republican Party because he's warring with this incumbent governor and and likely to endorse David Perdue if he gets him. And we can all, we can say he's guaranteed to endorse David Perdue if he gets him. Um, he's endorsed Herschel Walker in the Senate race over uh, two or three other Republican candidates. Um, with, with with more political experience and and, and with different uh, backgrounds, and he's endorsed Jody Heiss in the Secretary of State's race and Burt Jones in the Lieutenant Governor race over um, over over uh, Senate leaders and, and, and Republican leaders who he views as didn't help him enough to reverse the election outcome. So he is playing in a major way in Georgia's statewide races. And again, I mean, the question goes back. People like to compare Georgia to Virginia and 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 and, and worry about Democrats in particular were worried about, hey, is Virginia a bad sign for, for what could happen in Georgia? And we don't know, but we do know that Virginia didn't have to worry about the same internal Republican rifts that are on display in Georgia with the warring factions and with this former president uh, you know, continuing to assail Brian Kemp. Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, Lieutenant Governor Jeff Duncan, who's not standing for re-election. Um, and then you never know what the next email will bring. It's not a tweet anymore, but you never know what the ma- next mass email will bring if you're a Republican elected official who's still looking over his or her shoulder. Yeah, that's exactly right. Virginia um, was such an interesting test case because Donald Trump was quite literally not a factor. He did not campaign for Glenn Youngkin in Virginia. And that was because Glenn Youngkin didn't want him in Virginia. Uh, Georgians are not going to have that same situation. Um, Brian Kemp will not have that same situation. Um, But even just, even just, the brief endorsement from Donald Trump for all of those other candidates has been enough to pop all of them up to the top of the pile in those GOP primaries. Um, And so uh, it's a real factor for Brian Kemp. Kemp has, I think, um, a really strong story to tell. The economy in Georgia is just absolutely roaring right now. We have the lowest unemployment in history for those who are in um, in the labor pool. Um, obviously, there's a whole nother conversation about people who have dropped out of the workforce. But, you know, Kemp has, I think, a lot uh, to take back to voters. It's just this single factor of Donald Trump being personally angry at him about the 2020 election, uh, which wouldn't even have won the White House for him. Um, but he, you can just tell, you can just feel the rage just emanating from these emails, how angry he is at Brian Kemp. And that's the only thing that Brian Kemp really has to worry about between now and the primary. Um, but it's very, very real. And we're also told that uh, David Perdue shares that anger. Which is which is one reason why he's considering running, um, but the main motivating factor is is a fear from him and his supporters that Brian Kemp will lose to Stacey Abrams, in part because Trump will continue his fight against Brian Kemp. It's sort of this never ending circle, right? There is um, the uh, the problems kind of feed on each other, but um, we can assume that if Brian Kemp gets the nomination because of Trump's words, he says MAGA voters will never support Brian Kemp. So uh, the the same the same issue that dogged Senate runoff candidates this past January, when tens of thousands of Republican 
reliably Republican voters stayed home rather than vote for Kelly Leffler or David Perdue, you can ex- you can you can sense that this could magnify if if Brian Kemp is the nominee. So David Perdue saying, "Hey, I'm the only guy who can beat Stacey Abrams and and, and keep." the governor's mansion in Republican hands over the next two decades. But uh, after two decades of rule, I should say, his time is, the, the clock is ticking and there's a big question now about whether or not Stacey Abrams, who is expected to get in, but maybe not in December. I mean, I, me, I, I personally thought she would wait until the new year. Um, so there's a big question about whether or not this intensifies, speeds up his own timeline. Because if he's already leaning towards running, which is what we're told he is, he's leaning, his friends say that he's leaning towards a run. Will he go ahead and pull the trigger in the next week or will he wait until after the holidays, maybe after the national championship game? Uh, <laughs> because I've heard, that's, a, that's, a, that's a serious concern. If Georgia is in the national championship game, um, the state's attention will be divided, right? So will he wait until after that, that game in kind of early January uh, mid-January to announce his candidacy. We're, we're going to find out pretty soon. Yeah, well, he obviously should just go ahead and do it ASAP and leak it to the AJC so um, so we can yeah, get a jump on it. <laughs> the sooner the better, in my opinion. Um, but, you know, it really is a self-fulfilling prophecy in a way to say, well, those Donald Trump supporters will never support Brian Kemp. They would if Donald Trump would say, support Brian Kemp. It would not be hard to get them on board. It's the very same argument with election integrity in the state. Republican voters think the last election was stolen. That's because Donald Trump said it was. If he said it wasn't, they wouldn't think that. Um, So uh, David Perdue is right that Brian Kemp is damaged by all of this. It could be fixed very quickly by David Perdue and by Donald Trump saying that they're on board with Brian Kemp, but that is just does not appear to be in the cards. And then while all of this is happening now that Stacey Abrams is in the race, she was in an interview last night um, with one of the local Atlanta affiliates. And she, she was asked about this dynamic between the governor and David Perdue. And she said, look, I'm going to let the Republicans fight amongst themselves. I'm going to fight for Georgia. I mean, it's just a tailor-made line for her um, that she's she can ride for six months, eight months, as long as this goes on. Um, and it uh, just it just speaks to how clear the field is for her and how muddy the waters are for Republicans right now. And by the way, that's the same tactic that Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff used in the closing days of the of the runoff. They said, "I'll we'll let the Republicans fight." And that just goes to their strategy because, you know, they, they were aiming at their base. They felt like if they got the Democratic base back out, they could win. And that's going to be probably Stacey Abrams' strategy, too. If, if the middle comes, the middle comes. But if she can get the base out and kind of ignore, you know, let, let Republicans fight and, and take advantage of that, right? She'll, she, she'll welcome the Republican infighting. But I, I, I can't imagine her weighing in much and adding to that because, as we've noted in our stories and blogs and, and analysis, Republicans are hoping that Stacey Abrams hands them a gift by becoming that rallying point, by becoming something that can help Republicans rally around Brian Kemp and and just the Republican cause because she's so vilified among the conservative base, because our last poll showed a 90% disapproval rating for her among GOP voters in Georgia. So um, she doesn't want to hand them a gift. She's trying uh, not to uh, by by making any missteps that would that would further inflame the GOP. She's focusing on her voters and and what she says is her fight for Georgia. And and for her, she'll have a unified party. She'll have she'll be able to join the top of the ticket with with Senator Warnock, one of her closest allies, someone she helped recruit to run for that Senate seat. Um, 
So Democrats will project a sense of unity, at least at the top of the ticket. There's other there's other problems down the ticket, which we've <laughs> talked about in this podcast plenty. But at the top of the ticket, they'll be able to project a sense of unity while Republicans will have anything but. Yeah. And Raphael Warnock is the perfect example of what happens to a Democrat when Republicans just sit on the other side of the fence and just punch each other until they're all bloody. Um, so it's uh, it just gave Raphael Warnock such a huge opening in 2020 to really make it um, into that runoff and then eventually win. Um, so I think that uh, it's a, a very recent example of what happens and the opening it gives to Democrats. Um, so I think uh, Stacey Abrams would be more than happy for this to continue on. Um, and we'll have to see exactly what uh, David Perdue decides to do. I mean, there's nothing wrong with a contested primary. I think it helps usually produce the best candidate. Um, but in this particular instance, it seems to be driven by a factor outside of Georgia, not a factor inside of Georgia. And um, that's going to be a really, um, a really difficult dynamic for Republicans until they get that resolved. Well, Patricia, we will have plenty to talk about uh, over the next year on this Politically Georgia podcast. But all of the podcasts in our AJC network have been going at full steam, producing content this week. You can go back on this feed and check out our breakdown of Andre Dickens' upset victory. We didn't even talk about that today, but we have a whole podcast on that to become Atlanta's next mayor. The Access Atlanta podcast has details on an Atlanta holiday tradition coming to an end, Paul. And uh, D-Led over at the AJC's Falcons Beat previews the big game Sunday on the Bowtie Chronicles. Uh, so we also have Southern Fried Soccer with Doug Roberson looking at Atlanta United's first moves of 2021, the offseason, and then, of course, on the Braves Beat Report. Gabe Burns and Jay Black, our wonderful producer, dig into why there is now a labor stoppage in Major League Baseball and how that affects Freddie Freeman's negotiations. We better resign Freddie Freeman. That's all I can say. But we might not be able to sign him until for like six more months until the labor stoppage is uh, unstopped. <laughs> so we have a lot, a lot, a lot going on and much more to come, Patricia. I didn't know about about two thirds of those podcasts, and I'm I'm interested in all of them. I'm going for Southern Fried Soccer, and I think the holiday tradition is the Pink Pig that has been stopped over yes. my strong objections. Um, so those are um, all fabulous Atlanta centric podcasts and well worth digging into. So I'll spend part of my weekend folding laundry and listening to those. There you go. Well, <laughs> please rate, review, follow, share, subscribe to this podcast. We love hearing your feedback. You're getting your tweets. Um, we've been getting so much wonderful uh, comments from our listeners as we've revived this podcast. And yeah, tune in next week for podcast 191. It's amazing <laughs> to think about. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. I've been living here for 24 years, and I am still amazed at how rich the city's Black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash 
unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 